Hello, welcome back to How to PhD. My name is Aaron and I'm joined by my co-host Julia. Hi. And this is part one of our two-part special episode. This week we have our first ever guest, Professor Sebastian Kernbach on the show, who's going to be introducing you to the concepts like successful intelligence and energy competence to help you be a productive and creative researcher. Hello everybody, this is a very special episode of How to PhD. We're very happy to have uh, Professor Dr. Sebastian Kernbach on the show with us. Uh, Sebastian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, really happy to have you. It feels like this has been a couple of months in the making and, and we're really happy to finally get to this stage. Um, Absolutely. So I guess a good place to kick off, I guess, is um, if you could tell us and the listeners a, a little bit about yourself, your sort of background and, and how you sort of came to be in the position you are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to keep this short. So I'm a professor for creativity and design at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. And sometimes I also be in South Africa as a, as a guest professor at the African Doctoral Academy. And I'm also visiting fellow at Stanford University. And the way I got there was a bit of a curvy line, I would say. I used to work in the industry for Xerox, for a startup company, for consultancy. And then over time, I fell in love with something called knowledge visualization. So how can we visualize what is in our head and make it more tangible? And working for BMW, visualizing their strategy. So that they said it's not a, not a boring PowerPoint anymore. It's something people would actually look at and listen to. And from there, I developed more visualization. Uh, always in uh, collaboration with organizations. And then after a couple of years, I was like, this is cool, but I want to be closer to those human beings on this planet. So I also made an education in positive psychology. I learned anyways about design thinking, visual thinking, and I, I looked for a way to how to make this like more tangible and applicable. And this is how I went with a scholarship to Stanford and learned about this notion of uh, design your life, but also about creativity and research. And so today I'm really looking into how can we equip people in general, but of course researchers in particular, to create a more meaningful future, right? And um, really trying to orchestrate and bring together things from different disciplines and really people like literally starting uh, better into the day or even getting up in the morning, right? So that's maybe the professional side of things and now working with lots of organizations and universities around the world. And recently somebody told me, you know, this is all great, but, but what are you about as a person? And so I added these like two, three things, if I may, I would add them here too. Um, because when I was working in the industry at some point, I was like, what is my life all about? And I ended up traveling around the world in 80 days. And this really made me think. And for myself, I wanted more intellectual stimuli. And I guess this is why I ended up in the university, right? And then there was another moment in time when I traveled with a Volkswagen bus from Zurich to Barcelona for two weeks. And this was also, again, a good moment to think about life and reflect upon it. And I guess the last one, and then I'm going to leave it there, is I was hiking the, uh, the pilgrim path from Porto in Portugal to Santiago de Compostela. And these were always like maybe extreme ways of reflecting, but they really helped me. What am I all about? What is my life all about? And I guess this also informed my own research, but my own also very practical work with organizations and individuals and, and especially PhD students around the world. So that's a bit of an overview there, if, if I may. 
Great. Yeah, thanks so much. <laughs> a lot of things that we'd be very curious to ask you more about. But I think today um, we want to um, ask you about something that you mentioned in our last conversation, which is about that you have a mission, that you're on a mission to reinvent education, right? So can you tell um, us and the listeners a bit about well, how this came about? I mean, you mentioned, I guess, this traveling and all these experience led up to that. But what do you really mean um, by reinventing education? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's, it's me and it's also my team at Stanford and also the University of St. Gallen. And honestly, in my own PhD journey, for example, I was like, okay, I can take a lot of courses on running experiments, collecting data, analyzing data, etc. So this is beautiful. There's lots of summer schools there and also courses integrated in universities. But how about myself? How, how do I stay motivated? How do I literally get out of bed in the morning? How do I deal with setbacks or if something like life or family kicks in, right? So how do I kind of manage myself in order to be a productive but also creative researcher? And together with my colleagues at Stanford, we were really looking also into literature, obviously, as researchers and thinking, okay, we're supposed to do innovative, creative work, right? As a PhD, so we're supposed to come up with contributions, no matter how small or big they are. But there is no way of being explicitly taught about this. How do I do this? And as part of this, as part of a creative process, how do I deal with uncertainty, for example? And because of this, and maybe also our own situation, to be honest, we started to teach. So I taught already many years ago at the Swiss Summer School in Switzerland and my home university in St. Gallen. And my colleagues started to teach at Stanford. And somehow we came together and we said, well, this is so cool. Uh, let's teach together. So we have been teaching around the world, South Africa, Beijing, Europe, etc. And at some point it was, I think, what was it, two, three years ago, we really thought, okay, um, we really need to put this into a container to better affect the discourse and be even taken even more seriously. And, and luckily we got Cambridge University Press and said, well, this is, this is cool and this is relevant. And so we ended up writing this book called Creativity in Research. Um, that came out with Cambridge University Press. Now I'm thinking it's already 2019, I think. So it's already almost two years. Uh, but this was very beautiful because we can put all the different elements uh, like visual thinking, like teams, uh, like energy competence and all these things into this container. And it's great to have that book as an artifact because we also have to make things visible. And we really try to reinvent doctoral and research education with this. And we're doing this on a constant basis. So be it at Stanford, at the Swiss Summer School and other places. And this is really where I have a personal interest and, and having worked with probably now thousands of PhD students, I, it's very, very cool to see if they come to our workshops, how much of an immediate effect, immediate effect it has and how much effect it also has on supervisors because PhD students tell their supervisors about the techniques and stuff. And then they end up saying, oh, they actually also applied this. And, and this is really beautiful. And we really hope, and maybe this is our mission, that the programs we're doing, creativity and research, sometimes it's also called research as design, depending on where you are. At the African Doctor Academy, it's called the Productive PhD. And it would be really our goal is to make this a default course in every PhD program. Okay? Mm -hmm. So that really every PhD researcher around the world knows not only to do research design and the different methods, but also how to manage myself and how to proactively engage in a creative process and create high quality output, but also be confident and, and mentally healthy as, as I'm doing. 
So mm. that's a bit of a mission that I'm and we are uh, doing. Yeah, it's really, yeah, really interesting. I think particularly that point you say about having that two-way street that it's not just the the PhD candidates, but it's also the supervisors who are just as involved in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, really excited. So hopefully in, the, in these series of episodes that we're going to be releasing that will cover a lot of these concepts that Sebastian sort of a lot of these that he's pioneered. Um, and in this first one, uh, we're going to be looking at this uh, concept uh, of successful intelligence at first. Yeah, absolutely. I came along this concept and I thought it was just so beautiful. It's by a professor called Robert Sternberg, and he's a very established IQ researcher. I think he's, he's already towards the end of his career or beginning of the retirement. But what was interesting is he did a lot of IQ research, and, and really towards the end of his career, he came up with this triaric theory of intelligence, or what is also called successful intelligence. For those listeners who would like to Google it, just go ahead now, and then you also see a model in front of you. And, and the beauty of this is, and, and, and he called it successful intelligence, and the beauty of this, it, it consists of three parts. One is the very classical IQ, analytical intelligence, right? Then number two, uh, he says it's all about creative intelligence. It also connects nicely with, with emotional intelligence. And creative intelligence is so beautiful because it's not only about coming up with ideas, which creativity is about, finding ideas or new solutions to, to problems, uh, but it's, it's also about uh, dealing with novel situations, dealing with novel situations. And as a PhD student or as a researcher, we are constantly in novel situations because we have to come up with something that is not there yet. Right? This is what we have to do. And so maybe we will uh, 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 make a bit of a deep dive later on in some methodologies about this, but this is really beautiful to see how can I actually find ways to deal with those novel situations? Maybe using visual thinking, maybe using prototyping and other things, for example. So that's part number two. And then part number three is even more beautiful. It's practical intelligence. And what's interesting there is it really, he, and he puts it in nice words, he says practical intelligence is all about shaping your environment, shaping your physical environment, your social environment, your emotional environment, because by doing this and by having that practical intelligence, you're shaping an environment in which you can function, right? I mean, even now that I was running so many workshops on how to, how to do research in a remote setting, for example, uh, working from home, like what is it that you need to kind of function or to feel okay, right? And sometimes even I remember one story it was just so nice that, that one PhD student, she said, um, I don't know if I can say this. I was like, what is it all about? But to be honest, I work best when my cat is lying on my feet. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, whatever works, right? And this is, this is, this is practical intelligence at its best, right? Because you're shaping the environment for you to function, let's say, but you're also shaping your environment to deal with these uncertainties, for example, right? Because novelty is all about uncertainty. And then whether this is physical support, as in what do I have to have around myself to support me, or what are the distractions I should maybe somehow find a way to deal with, or even socially, who are the people that I need to seek out for for feedback on my uh, papers maybe, but maybe also people who just pat me. They have no idea what I do, but I just there said, it's going to be okay. You know, you're a cool person. It's going to be okay. And all these things are really, if we do this with PhD students in workshops, people are somehow getting it, 
but not really having methods that to do this in, in a quick way and to really act upon this. So using this triaric theory of intelligence or what is also called successful intelligence by Robert Sternberg um, is also a, a real eye-opener for people because not, not, the, not only the person with the biggest IQ who knows all the methods will maybe do the best output. Maybe they will, but they will be maybe having mental health issues, maybe, right? Mm -hmm. But those who figure out all three aspects especially also the shaping your environment uh, and having the practical intelligence, they will have high quality output, but they will also be happy and confident about this. Mm. Yeah, I can relate a lot to what you were saying about being confronted with novel situations because not coming from background in research or uh, having a very different background, everything in my PhD seemed new and um, there was so much uncertainty and so many things I didn't know and everything every day like felt there was something I'd never experienced before and even things like estimating how long a study takes you to conduct, right? You don't know and so you're just constantly a little bit stressed. Um, mm. Will it all work out in the end? And I think that's a a lot of pressure comes from from the PhD as well. Uh, my question would be, so um, if once you're aware of that, okay, there are these different kind of co components of um, intelligence or successful intelligence, what do you do with that? What do you do in your workshop? So how can it actually help? Where's the practical component for PhD students? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the topics that we do in terms of the practical intelligence and in shaping the environment is something that is called uh, dealing with your energy. Mm. So really working on your energy competence. And this is interesting because, you know, sometimes when I start this topic, depending on the, the domain the, P the PhD researchers are in, some are like with skeptic to be like, okay, is this esoteric? Is this about <laughs> hugging trees? Uh, and, and we came across this in the, in the beginning a, a lot, uh, depending on the, the depending on the domains. I'm not going to say any domains now, um, which is very interesting. But then in the end, when they apply this, it becomes very useful and effective and, and starting from the day of the workshop or the next day in a way. And it's something I came across from a researcher at ETH Zurich uh, that she was doing. And it's, it's a lot about something that's called chronotypes, which comes from chronobiology which is the way our energy unfolds throughout the day. And it seems obvious or common sense, but it's not at all. Because, I mean, we know about these early morning and, and evening kind of uh, people. But what's interesting about the chronotypes is just having this dichotomous thinking, morning, evening, is even too short thinking. We need to be more differentiated about this. And there's tons of research about this. So we have like a uh, distinctive, I'd say extreme morning type. We have a moderate uh, morning type. We have an indifferent, which I am, for example. We have a more moderate evening person and a very extreme uh, evening person. So we have at least five, right? And what's interesting there, you can, you can, basically, do, you can basically use your intuition or you can also use tests uh, that I can also share the link where you can get an idea of what kind of type you are in a way. And what's interesting there is, and this is what we do in the workshop, is we will be drawing our energy curves. How is our energy unfolding throughout the day? And for example, every human being, if you, ha if you have won a Nobel Prize or not, everybody has that curve, no matter, no matter what. And um, what's interesting is that we have two times in the day, they are called prime time and high time. And each of these times is like two to three hours, depending on the general um, energy, let's say, well, we, we, we can come back to that. And so that's your four to six hour window in the day when you have your highest energy. I always like to, to use the hotel analogy, I always call this my five star energy, like this is my five star energy. And what's interesting there is, 
First of all, it's interesting that we cannot be of full energy all day, every day. It's just not possible. Okay, so we have these four to six hours to work on things that require lots of energy. So maybe that's already one implication. So we were like, aha, uh -huh, okay. So I, I shouldn't ask myself also, speaking about well-being and also self-compassion, to be full of energy, right? Sometimes people come in and say, but what if I have a conference deadline in three days from now? I have to work all day, every day. And I said, yes, you can, but this is called hyper-aggressive energy. So your body gives you that energy, and you can do this for three, four, five days, but if you don't recover afterwards, then it's a good strategy for mental health and burnout. Mm. Right? So knowing your energy curve is also good prevention um, for uh, against mental health and burnout. And what I like to call this, this is uh, about sustainable productivity and healthy performance, because it's performance in line with who you are, right? Mm. So we have these two Prime times and high times. Is that the same thing, um, prime time and high time, or is that difference? Yeah, it's it's a bit different to the extent that, let's say the 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 prime time is really the five plus kind of energy, so that's really the very unique one, and the other one is more in the area of like maybe your four star energy. Okay. So you still have, compared to the rest of the day, you still have uh, significantly more energy. It's just not as high, let's say. And and what's really interesting there is. Also, from a research perspective, there's very strong evidence that your chronotype, depending on also when you wake up in the morning, your, your prime time is especially very much dependent on, on when you wake up in the morning, while, you, while your high time is a bit more flexible. Okay? Mm -hmm. Let me make this maybe more, more concrete. So somebody who's an early morning type waking up at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning, those people are usually straight up almost 10 minutes after in their prime time. These are also people that like to, they could even go from bed straight to the desk, right? Or they could go straight running. And when the last time I did this in the Technical University in Vienna, uh, I showed this and somebody said, oh, now I know and I'm, I'm, I'm wasting my prime time commuting to work, mm. right? So you would wake up at maybe at five and maybe then 5.30 take the train or whatever, and then would arrive at work and then his prime time is over and then he's like tired, but then he starts to work, right? Mm. And, and so because of this, he actually changed this in, in, in coordination with, with his supervisor and saying, how about I stay the first two hours at home and, and use that time to work on something that's important. Mm. And then I, I spend my time afterwards when I'm not as energetic to commute mm. uh, to work in a way. Right? So how, um, so just like, so in your daily life or if you're working with other people and let's say in your prime time, your supervisors are always scheduling their team meetings that go for three hours. Um, is it then okay to like raise awareness for that and say like, look, this is my best time. Is it possible to like postpone that? Or have you actually done that? Um, or do you recommend yeah. that to students? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so the thing what comes in is, is that people say, yeah, this is all beautiful, but what about constraints, right? Just as you just mentioned. And I think what's, what's really beautiful here is um, that this energy unfolds in any way. And uh, I think we should also ask ourselves not to think that we have to change this from tomorrow all day, every day. So maybe, you know, like thinking about, oh, now I have to protect my prime time every day and, and oh, my supervisor puts me uh, appointments in there so I cannot do it, oh my God, right? Mm -hmm. So also here we're moving a bit away from this dichotomous either or thinking and moving from dichotomous to more differentiated thinking. So maybe there is one day in a week where you don't have this appointment, maybe you can try, 
and, and see how it feels, right? But even if, as, as you asked, even if somebody puts an appointment there, I have had PhD students uh, engaging in, in, in various strategies about this. And the one that has worked the best was this, just to inform the others that this kind of energy thing exists. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing what happens is, unless you have maybe somebody not open at all, but in most cases, people were interested and also willing to move things around. And, and one story I even heard, and this is why I also said earlier that it affects supervisors as well, is that a PhD student, for example, at Stanford has shared this with her supervisor. And her supervisor knew that her prime time was from 9 to 12 in the morning. And what she did, I mean, that was, that was before Corona, back in the days when we were still in offices and labs. But what, what, what happened was she actually, because of this, not only moved the appointments, but she also put a letter outside or like a note outside her office saying no more meetings and phone calls between <laughs> 9 and 12 because it was her prime time and she said, I need this to get my papers done in a way, right? Then, of course, hopefully uh, you are in the same uh, prime time or time zone in a way. But, you know, it makes people think, mm. right? Or I also had somebody who said um, she was like a more late type and her prime time was not at 5 in the morning but at 8 in the evening. Mm-hmm. And then she said... You know, the main reason I'm not using this is because my office mates, and we are quite a cool cohort, they all go for drinks or socialize or do sports. And I'm always the one who, who's going with them because I don't want to say no, but I'm wasting my time, my, my energy there in a way, right? And so again, we said, well, how about you just tell them once, hey guys, maybe just not today because I realized I have my prime time now and I just want to test it today, right? And she was surprised how, how many thoughts she had before people would be like laughing at her or whatever. She said, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Well, good luck with that. And please tell me afterwards how it went because I have the same thing. Ah, interesting, right? So especially in the, I think in academia, people, of course, also give legitimization if it's something profound where you have some empirical evidence. And luckily, that whole notion of energy competence is not about hugging trees, but there's some scientific proof behind this. And, and people are actually surprisingly open to also then uh, maybe learn from you about the concept and also think for themselves how they could function, right? Is there, is there a risk that you can get too obsessed with your prime time? So I remember in my um, um, bachelor's degree when I was studying the clarinet, I um, always went really early into the university to practice. And um, it was kind of a little bit that I feel I have to do it in the morning. Otherwise, I won't get stuff done. And my whole day would be wasted if I only start in the afternoon because I guess because I know that my prime time is in the morning but on the other hand I felt uh, someone then was meeting me said like Julia you know that you can also have a productive two-hour practice session if you just do it in the afternoon it doesn't always have to be in the morning so is that a little bit of a risk that you get less flexible if you keep telling yourself oh this is the time where I'm productive and the rest of the times I'm not yeah, absolutely. I think there is a there is a there is a chance that you get somehow stuck in this, even though stuck sounds a bit negative. Mm-hmm. But I can just tell you from my experience, or also many other people's experience, that once you experience how you can better deal with your prime time, it really has an effect on you in in, in a positive way. However, you are right. If you get too caught up and like just almost limiting yourself to be productive in other times, right? But I, I, I had exactly this phenomenon uh, just a year, like a year and a half from now, I had to write a book in three months. So I said also to my wife, I said, okay, 
9.30 to 1.30 is my prime time or like a little bit more, but this is my time. Then I need a one and a half hour break until three and then from three till eight, I will work again. So, and, and I was actually pretty caught up by this concept and it worked for three weeks. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is just too much. It almost feels like I'm pressuring myself to, to be able to perform, right? So I think it's good to try it. And I would also always apply with doing this, I would always apply something that's called the growth mindset. Growth mindset by a Stanford professor called Carol Dweck, uh, D-W-E-C-K, compared to a fixed mindset. Because uh, when you try this, or maybe when you're caught up with this, if you have a fixed mindset, again, you're thinking, a fixed mind would always think in winning and losing. So it would be like, oh, actually now my prime time is not working anymore because I'm pressuring myself to perform there, right? If you, if you apply a growth mindset, and a growth mindset only asks one question, that is, what can I learn here? What can I learn here? And maybe after those three weeks, I asked myself, what can I learn here? I didn't say, oh, my prime time is not working out anymore because that would be dichotomous winning losing. I was like, what did I learn here? Well, I learned it, it works but I'm also overdoing it. And, and one thing that I changed, and, and, and maybe this, this, this sounds weird, but something that I really changed is I, I let myself, I gave myself Monday morning and Friday noon off to do whatever I want. So I, I was more smoothly going into it, not using my prime time on Monday, for example, and, and being more relaxed about this. So in this way you can find your strategies, but it's, it, I would really, yeah, try to, to see what can you learn from the situation. So when you talk about the clarinet and you said, oh, I'm pressuring myself only in the morning, but I can also do afternoon. It's like, okay, what can I learn from this, from this pressure? How might I make it different, right? How might I make practicing? That's actually another one. I don't want to go too much into detail, but from design thinking, this how might I is very powerful. Mm -hmm. So if you have a situation you want to change or you feel like not so happy with, you can see how might I make practicing in the afternoon um, more, more good or more, more happy or whatever. Or if somebody says, I really cannot get up in the morning, how might I make getting up in the morning more fun? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay, I didn't know it could be fun, actually. Okay, and then you can also find ways. So yeah, it's good to know it, but maybe not to get too caught up by it. Even though I have to say that for myself, I'm the indifferent type, so I, I like to get up around 8, and then my prime time is 9 to 12 also a little bit, that I'm very strict about this. So if, if I can, I really try to not have any meetings or phone calls in, this, in these times. And, and this works for me almost every day, but that book situation, for example, I was just overdoing it. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's something, I'm actually currently writing a new book, and, I, and, and, and now this, this, our conversation reminds me of not being too strict with myself. <laughs> It's really, yeah, really, I think um, it's one of those things, I think a lot of people have a kind of intuitive awareness of that. You might hear like a lot of people might say, oh, I'm not a morning person. You know, you often hear that kind of phrase, but perhaps they don't act on it. Um, and you mentioned um, the use of uh, sort of an energy chart to kind of chart this through the day. Is that kind of the best way to sort of identify these times is just to sit down and kind of sort of look at your day and kind of recognize, oh, right it turns out, yeah, maybe in the afternoon I'm a bit more productive than in the mornings and just kind of making a note of that. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, this kind of like energy mapping or energy curve that we do, I, I usually in the workshop um, we, we, we use intuition to have like a first guess. How, 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 does, it, how does it look like, like from a tendency perspective in a way? I once had a PhD student at seven, I'll never forget this, he's like, but professor, this is not very precise. 
And I'm like, yes, it's not. And he said, I need more data for this. And I was like, okay, but how about collecting data? And, and it, I'm not joking. He actually then um, basically took his phone and every half an hour throughout the day for like one week, he would give himself like a rating on energy from zero to 10. And then a week later, we saw each other, or 10 days, two weeks later, we saw each other and he's like, hey, I, I met my perfect curve. So I'm like, okay. So if somebody wants to be more accurate, you can also do that, right? Um, usually intuition works quite well. And, and really, honestly, just lately, you can actually do a very specific DNA test where you, can, where you send in your parts of your hair and they actually calculate the time when your melatonin, that sleep hormone, when this is at the maximum, because wow. I think half an hour later is your perfect time to go to bed, right? And, and, and because of that, the rest of your energy unfolds throughout the day. So they have very concrete recommendations of when you should work, when you should eat, when you should work out, etc. So you could go as, as scientific as, as that if you wanted. But to be honest, um, within the workshops, we use intuition also because we don't have the time to do like big tests and stuff. And, and samples. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, and it, but it's working already quite nice. And, uh, and what's also beautiful is um, that we are also trying to celebrate that it doesn't have to be like perfect in the first place. Yeah. Because maybe in the first curve you draw, you feel like, yeah, I feel like my prime time is like from five, six, seven in the morning, and then again in the afternoon, etc. And then you observe, and maybe you also slightly adjust. And and when we draw the curve, I think it's also a good exercise in anti-perfectionism in a way because we draw the curve. So again, we have the prime time and the high time, but also body and mind also needs the low time, right? Which is a good time for napping, doing low low cognitive effort tasks, or moderate sports, etc. And then the, the fourth part is, is the alpha time, which is the time when we are just between waking up, so like between uh, asleep and, and awake, where we are half asleep, half awake, which is usually good for creative uh, thinking, because then half of our nervous uh, uh, brain is actually half asleep, so we have a tendency for, for better crea creation and creativity. And um, then looking at the curve is also, okay, so we have a bit of an idea but what's really important is also not to, okay, precision who wants can be precise, but it's also not wanting to change everything at the same time. So we usually pick one thing. And some people say, again, how might I, actually we do this, right? Uh, how might I protect my prime time better hmm. from distractions at home or from my supervisor or from project work, right? So that, that's, a, that's a very popular one. It's actually probably the most popular one, protecting the prime time. You know, sometimes I have people and... In, in South Africa, my PhD students average age is around 45 years old, and they usually have a full-time job, they have a couple of kids, maybe some side projects, and they literally, literally try to squeeze it in, so we have to be very efficient, right? Or like trying to find, and then we say, okay, if there was just one hour or two in a day that you could use, let's see if, we, if you can make that your prime time in a way. So that brings an end to part one of our interview. Some really fascinating points in that one, right, Julia? Yes, and I think there are really some really good um, practical tips that our can, listeners can take from this episode. So, for example, the energy mapping that Sebastian was talking about. Um, so you can just sit and draw um, throughout the day how your energy changes. Maybe you learn from there when your prime time is or your high time. Um, and then the next step would be to kind of 
find out how you can protect your prime time. So as Sebastian was saying, maybe you make your um, supervisor aware of when your prime time is and when you really want to focus on writing or something like that. And then have the meetings with your supervisors outside of your prime time. And I think a really good takeaway, um, or just to remind yourself again, what Sebastian was saying about novel situations that as a PhD researcher or researcher generally, you're often confronted with novel situations. And that can be quite stressful because um, yeah. there's so much uncertainty. So you just be aware that that is completely normal because it's research. <laughs> we don't know what uh, what we're going to find out. <laughs> um, so just be kind to yourself. And if you're interested in his book, um, Creativity and Research, um, you can also look that up. And yeah, I think I'm going to have a look as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty much all of the stuff he discussed yeah. is, is, is in there. Uh, so thank you again. Please do share this episode with anyone who you think would find it useful. Um, of course, if you want more support, motivational supervision, our one-to-one services available with a free 30-minute session. So just email us at one-to-one or written out at how to PhD show to sign up for that please do get in touch with us contact at howtophd.show is the show email twitter and instagram at howtophdshow so thank you again to sebastian uh for uh you know taking part in this part taking one his time. Uh, but we do have a part two coming yep. a little bit earlier on wednesday uh, and this one is going to go into some really interesting things so it's going to go into identifying your energy givers and suckers so how do you go about actually identifying them uh, managing your inner voice utilizing perfection and of course a very important topic um, with a really cool technique uh, all about caring for your mental health so That's everything. So have a great day and we will see you very shortly on Wednesday.